Hello everyone and welcome to the second in our series of short mini-sodes. As we said last time, this is a slightly different format from our usual episodes, so we'd really love to hear your feedback. If you like what you hear, or if you don't, we'd be really happy to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram under 80 Days Podcast, or you can email us directly at 80daysPodcast at gmail.com. We will have some updates to share pretty soon about Season 3, but for now, on with the show. Hello all, Mark here from the 80 Days team. Regular listeners might recall that I make a lot of uh, jokes about my wiener, and also that I'm based in Surrey in the UK. Both halves of that sentence will be highly relevant in this episode, but we will tackle, tackle also means peener, the latter half first. So I figured it was a bit ridiculous spending my evenings reading about bizarre, faraway places like the Seychelles and Liberia and, you know, any other 80 Days classics, insert here, um, without learning a bit about my adopted locality and why it became, possibly, one of the most important places in the world in 1215. Many of you may have heard of the Magna Carta. I kinda had, I guess. I knew it was somehow a kind of foundational document, like Hammurabi's Laws, um, the Ten Commandments, or France's Declaration of the Rights of Man. I knew that it was a set of secular commandments that were somehow preserved in, in modern laws. That's maybe being generous to past me to say I understood all of that. Knowing it was a big deal was probably about the extent of it. And there was, of course, one other thing that made it significant to me personally. I'd heard this particular clip a time or 50. In 1215 at Runnymede, do da, do da, the nobles and the king agreed, oh, do da, And it was in that first line that it actually landed. Runnymede. Weird word, but to me, a familiar one. It just so happens to be kind of where I live. In the constituency of Runnymede and Weybridge, in the southeast of England, quite close to London. So I might be revealing a bit too much there, perhaps. Um, just to say, don't rob me. I have nothing you'd want, um, unless you share my passion for distressed off-brand Converse shoes and books about Magna Carta. Incidentally, I relied heavily on Magna Carta, the true story behind the Charter by David Starkey, so um, big ups to that fella. Now, while I'll be doing the heavy lifting to tell this story, you'll also be hearing a few familiar voices chiming in with questions and comments as we go along, namely... Joe Byrne in Nottingham in the UK. And Luke Kelly in Hong Kong. Uh, hello there, fellows. Oh. Okay, so uh, we'll also need some appropriate music. That is a check. And perhaps a sound effect or two. Ah, yes, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're ready to get started. And in his own words, meet our main character. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou, to his archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, barons, justices, foresters, sheriffs, stewards, servants, and to all his officials and loyal subjects, greeting. 
John. John was born in 1167 to King Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. They were apparently a very into-each-other couple, and fertile to boot. Uh, John was the youngest of eight children. Having several older brothers, including Richard the Lionheart, John was expected not to amount to much. In fact, he earned the name Lackland, as in literally lacking in land, because his elder siblings were due to inherit so much that nothing, it was thought, would come to John. He betrayed his father on his deathbed, and also his brother. He became king in 1199, and some say he murdered his nephew, who was the rightful heir. He inherited England, Normandy, and other areas in France. John's territory was known as the Angevin Empire. It stretched from Scotland to the Pyrenees, and it was the largest area in Europe ruled by a single ruler at that time. France was home, and England was just a wet and cold money tree. His nemesis was Philip II, King of France, John's opposite. Philip was the golden child, respected, and I bet he smelled like really nice as well. You just, just get the feeling he had, he had it together. So Philip got the name Augustus, as in growing, um, like Caesar Augustus, growing both in prestige and kingdom. John, as well as having the nickname Lackland, got the nickname Soft Sword. I can feel a joke coming on here. I, I don't know what you're talking about or what you think of me. <laughs> I'm sure the softness of his sword well, was a reference to the weakness of his um, metallurgists and blacksmiths. Mm. Uh, you're a real scumbag, you know, sometimes, Luke. John was losing land to Philip in France, so he did what few of the preceding kings of England did, he moved to England to raise some money in 1206, raising £132,000 in six years. For reference, that, that was a lot of money then, still kind of a lot of money now. Um, but yeah, that was, that was insane amounts of money then. John also picked a fight with Pope Innocent III. Um, the Protestant side of me is wondering how ironic that name was, uh, but whatever happened in his private life, it's not a part of this story. However, uh, salacious or smutty it might have been. John ignored the preferred nominee for Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the main seat for the church uh, of the time uh, in England, and took the church's possessions. He got another £60,000 this way, for reference, still a lot of money, and an excommunication for his troubles. So, not great. John bought himself some enemies. The funds he used in order to pacify the British Isles, i.e. Wales and Ireland, which were the problematic parts. He did this while pissing people off like it was his damn job. He lost territory in France, which really, really pissed off his barons, as in many cases it was their land he was losing. Then he started charging for every little bit of admin that required the king's okay, and calling those debts in. Really, really hard. He went so far as to imprison the wife and son of a heavy hitter called William de Bruise in Windsor Castle, and proms like maybe a bit totally starve them to death. Oh. So, John had a plan. 
he was going to try to divide his enemies. He made peace with this so-called Pope Innocent III, and tried to take the fight to Philip in France, in order to, you know, get back in with the barons. He lost to Philip in his war, and bankrupted himself. When he got home, the taxpayers were on strike. And the taxpayers were? The barons? Yes, indeedy. These are still the barons and noblemen that he's been messing with throughout. It was suggested that a charter might spell out how to reform things. Henry I had put out a charter, and it had been renewed by John's father, Henry II, and it had two very attractive angles to it. Make England great again. And drain the moat. If that's familiar to anybody. So, um, yeah, things to uh, make England a very powerful place and also to remove some of the problematic uh, political institutions. John spent Christmas in Winchester in the south of England, but he decided to meet these problematic barons who were, at this point, pretty angry with him. In the Temple Church, the barons were definitely packing some medieval heat. They were very well armed. So, here I am in the Temple Church in the city of London. This was the headquarters of the Order of Crusaders, known as the Knights Templar. They were international bankers, as well as warriors for the Pope, pushing Muslims out from important areas like Spain and the Holy Land. Their church was seen as a safe space for John and the Barons. In part, this was because of William Marshall, who was the head of the Templars in London, but was also effectively the head of the Barons, and pretty much the most respected person in the country. We will also see later on why this was, and how he was really, really not a guy to mess with. So the Barons in this space said, give us this charter, John. Give us the dang charter. John, for his part, countered with, bend the knee. This is beginning to sound like Game of Thrones. You know nothing, John, Lackland. There was more. While John was willing to give the barons some kind of charter, he would not allow anything that undermined his authority. They had to bend the knee. But the barons had really gotten a taste for charters. John also pledged to be a crusader, to join the holy war against Muslims in the Holy Land, which meant he locked in 100% unconditional, cast-iron, titanium, flippin' mahogany-clad support from the Pope. The Pope was a cheap date, apparently. John had pledged to meet the barons in Northampton, as a next step. But he reneged on his promise. As a result, the barons marched south. And they weren't just, you know, doing it for the exercise. Their marching came with a threat. They would, by taking possession of his fortresses, 
force him to give them sufficient satisfaction as to their before-named demands. In other words, this was a threat of civil war. John was never going to agree to it. War. It began with the barons laying siege to Northampton and John seizing their estates. What proved decisive was that Robert Fitzwalter, who was the commander of the rebels, and had the title Marshal of the Army of God and the Holy Church. Seriously, great name. He was Lord of Barnard Castle, and therefore was the Procurator of London and leader of the city militia. I, I once had to get procurated by my, my, my medical professionals. Very pleasant, surprisingly. Anyway, uh, so John tried to get the support of London by giving them a mayor and confirming their traditional liberties However, they were still super angry about all those damn taxes. The rent is too damn high, etc. Fitzwalter's army marched overnight and arrived at London early in the morning on Sunday, 17th of May. They found the gate open. The fall of London broke John and broke his administration. Within 10 days, he bowed to the inevitable, and on the 31st of May, he took up residence in Windsor, and then following on the 10th of June, he traveled to Runnymede. 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 Runnymede was important, because it was between Windsor, which was a pretty much impregnable fortress, and Staines of Ali G. Fame, Booyakasha, just the little finger flick there. Not good for the audio medium. Where the barons had camped. The land was also important because it was a marsh. So it would have been very difficult to march an army there or to hold a uh, traditional battle. John came to Runnymede to set his seal on the demands of the barons. It begins, These are the articles which the barons seek and which the king agrees. The seal itself had two sides. On the front was the king as lawgiver and judge, and on the back was the king as warrior. Given his reputation for welching on deals, punitive taxes, and cruelty, he was a failure on the front, and against the barons and against the French, he was a failure on the back. Even after he set his seal, many of the barons refused to accept and there was huge mistrust on their part, which you can understand. Five days later, they met again on the 15th of June. John did not sign the charter, but did confirm it with his seal. In fact, there's no evidence that he was able to write. No original seal copy of the Magna Carta exists today, and even the date isn't out. Four days later, on the 19th of June, they met again at Runnymede, Runnymede. on an occasion of high ceremony. The clerks drew up the charter in fancy talk. Know that before God, for the health of our soul and those of our ancestors and heirs, to the honour of God, the exaltion of the Holy Church, and the better ordering of our kingdom. Using plenty of the royal we. I used to have a bottle of royal we that I used to use in my joint pains and in part. That's a, that's a gross joke, I just thought of that. The first six copies weren't handed over until the 24th and it took almost a month to produce another seven. 
By the time the second batch of charters was ready, the peace, peace, yay, mm, peace, had already broken down. Despite some of the articles sounding very high and idealistic for the most part, such as No man shall be seized or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. And To no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. It seems to have been a shopping list of grievances and settling of scores on the part of the barons. No sheriff, royal official, or other person shall take horses or carts for transport from any free man without his consent. They even take the time to insult some of their competitors, including no less than the Sheriff of Nottingham, (laughs) who they obviously thought was a total asshole. Hey, that's actually where I'm living right now. Everything here seems to be named after Robin Hood or Maid Marian, and famously they kind of shared the opinion of the barons on the quality of the sheriff as a guy. The copy of the Magna Carta sealed by the barons is today in the National Archives here in the UK. The barons had beaten John so badly there was now a Treaty of Versailles situation, when they asked for everything they wanted and humiliated him, even setting up a commission of themselves to decide whether John had broken the charter or not. The barons shall elect 25 of their number to keep, and cause to be observed with all of their might, the peace and liberties granted and confirmed to them by this charter. John settled 50 claims in the 10 days following the 19th of June. John tried to play by the book in order to secure a separate deal to get back London. The soldiers who had secured London for the barons were going stir-crazy and wanted to leave London City to have a tournament. One of the barons realised the problem of all these soldiers leaving the city and instead instructed them to have their tournament on the heath between Staines and Hounslow. Anybody who knows London geography knows that there is still a heath between Staines and Hounslow. It is Heathrow, as in, you know, that busiest airport in Europe, Heathrow. They have further meetings at Oxford and Staines, but John behaved so well, and the barons so dickishly, that the tide of public opinion turned in his favour. We are now only about two months on from the signing of the Magna Carta, just for context. And here's a funny thing about two months. Two months was almost exactly the amount of time it took for a message from London to reach Rome, and a message to reach London back from Rome. So, when uh, Pope Innocent III heard about this Magna Carta this great charter. He lost his popey shit. He denounced the charter as extorted. By such violence and fear as might affect the most courageous of men. He prohibited John to keep his oath, to observe it, and he declared it null and void of all validity forever. So wait, wait, Magna Carta just disappears? Sounds like the whole thing was a 
waste of time and sealing wax. Why are we still talking about yeah, it? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that. Runnymede might have seemed important at the time, but you can see it wasn't the momentous occasion they thought. But there was a meaning, and it'll become clear soon. To give you an Animal House-style flash-forward into the future, what happened here? There was a brief invasion by France, with the support of the barons. The invasion was by Prince Louis, who was the son of King Philip. John alienated the last of his supporters, including up to a third of the knights of his own damn house, which is pretty hard to do. John would uh, suffer an attack of dysentery, and then would literally run into quicksand at the Wash in the east of England. This is an estuary directly north of London, which is now a, a national park. Many of his possessions fell into the quicksand, and he died on the 18th. He died in a place called Newark. Not the one in New Jersey, the one in England. And reportedly, some of his servants uh, stole the last of his possessions. So, here's the tally from that, that quick uh, flash forward. John was gone. Um, the French prince was pushing to take over England. As we are all not speaking French today, obviously something big changed. That something big was the fact that John's son and heir was only nine years old and therefore unfit to rule. This meant you needed a regent, an adult carer who can rule with his authority until the king came of age. The someone was William Marshall, first Earl of Pembroke. Pembroke, I mentioned earlier, when I was in the Temple Church. Pembroke was the most respected man in the country. Pembroke. Pembroke, Pembroke. was a cunning negotiator. Pembroke, Pembroke. was the mutt's nuts. Pembroke. 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 Yes, Pembroke. Pembroke was the person trying to broker the truce at the Temple Church. And now, through a mix of diplomacy and soldiering, he was going to perform a minor damn miracle and heal the rifts caused by John and push out the invading Prince Louis. Part of the way he healed the rift was by pushing to reissue the Magna Carta. For God's sake and for the salvation of our soul. William Pembroke. He removed many of the controversial elements of Magna Carta, including the Council of the Barons, putting the Charter above the King, and the rights of the Council to mess with the King if they felt that he went against the Charter. But they kept what people liked about Magna Carta. For example, any rules including easy transfer of property, uh, free passage of goods and, and liberties for towns and ports, and so on. Here we can see the importance of the Magna Carta, because it helped to affirm the expectation of people that there should be a charter, whatever that charter might be. Prince Louis didn't understand the significance of that, and he didn't commit to a charter, and didn't even found his own competing charter. He essentially brought a crown to a charter fight. The model was... Yeah, kind of broken. Pembroke's reputation as a soldier also, to be honest, helped. He was quite old at this at this point. He was in his 70s, I believe. But his reputation as a soldier who had won, I think, 500 separate contests was so great, both in skill and in honour, his opponents had no problem, no shame in being beaten by him because they were being beaten by the best. Side note about William Marshall, he actually spent years in self-imposed exile in Ireland due to a fallout with John. His wife had extensive land there, and it goes to show the magnitude of achievement because he didn't even really like John all that much, one must assume. Okay, so this sounds like it was a like a total failure. I mean, wasn't it a failure? 
It didn't create any kind of a piece, and it was almost immediately cancelled. Okay, well, many point to Magna Carta being the foundation of, of, of many modern rights, such as habeas corpus, um, freedom from unlawful detention, so that is, and it cut the authority of the king down in favour of a larger, more representative group. Not democracy, but not the opposite of democracy either. So it was the start, at least symbolically, of a long drift from the absolute power of kings towards some kind of parliament-like assembly. Mm. It just took eight centuries from here to get there. Magna Carta failed to keep peace, barely existed long enough to be copied down, and was immediately rejected and revoked by the Pope. But it was very significant because it changed the expectations of people. People expected the rules to be written down, and these expectations were set by this Magna Carta. That said, many of the high-minded ideals that have been ascribed to the Magna Carta are a little over-egging it. As you can see, it was really just a list of grievances by some low-level local power brokers who were pissed about paying too many taxes. But that expectation carried through into the future, laying the foundations in other charters, including uh, the US Bill of Rights, the Geneva Convention, and so on and so on. People expect the rules to be written down, and that was what was so special about Runnymede in 1215. So I couldn't find all this out without getting curious about Runnymede itself. So, I thought I might feel the weight of history coming here. The hand of eternity on my milky shoulder or something. But no, not particularly. It's a field, like the one beside my house, just a place in a moment like any other. And maybe that's all any of history is. Moments magnified by a future we can never be sure of. We don't know when some nothing sod of land might be the birthplace of a new world leader, villain, or a principle for future society. I remember years ago, Joe said to me, the country is just going to be run by idiots you met in college house parties. It's the same principle. Magna Carta was a bit of a mess, and it didn't last long, but it started something no one could foresee, and we all live with the effects today. Once it was made, it could never fully be unmade. And it was made in 1215 in Runnymede. Do-da, do-da. All right, and that is Runnymede. We want to say a huge thank you today to Sam Hume from the always excellent History of Witchcraft podcast for reading the lines from the Magna Carta in his non-Irish accent. The music in today's episode was by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons License 3.0 by Attribution. We've also had a couple of queries recently about our theme music. It was created by freelance composer Thomas O'Boyle. If you've got a project that needs music or sound, we would highly recommend him. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us, as per usual, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 80dayspodcast or email us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. We are also starting a Facebook group, so if you search on Facebook for 80 Days Podcast, you should be able to find that, and you can come and chat to us there. Lastly, we would again really love to hear your feedback on this episode format, so be sure to get in touch, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>